Hey, this is Pastor Brad at Garden City Church. I just wanted to say thank you for coming into this space and listening to our podcast. You know, our desire as a church is that we would learn how to love and lead like Jesus because we believe that he knows how to love people best and how to lead people best. If you'd like to know more information about who we are as a church, you can visit GardenCityBMT.com. God bless and have a great day. Man, so we are 13 days away from that day, huh? If you haven't done your shopping, you're going to be late. Um, Amazon is starting to uh, let us know that things might not deliver by Christmas if you wait just a little bit longer. And so whether you've got your stockings up or whether you chopped down your tree or got your tree down from the attic or from the basement, they don't have basements out here, do they? No, there's no basements. Um, The ornaments have been hung. You're singing the Christmas songs. You're drinking the eggnog, if that's your thing. Um, Man, we are in the season. And yet there are always times in this season that it doesn't feel like that season. It could be that last week it was 80 degrees and now it's 40 degrees. But there's something about as the season approaches in the busyness and in the hustle and bustle of life that we just kind of seem to lose sight sometimes by what is magnificently taking place each and every Christmas season. And of course, we love the fact that we get to give gifts to our kids who count down the days, and by the end of Christmas, my kids will continue to ask Siri how many days until Christmas, and he'll, uh, they'll get the response, obviously, of about 364 days, and they'll ask every day from that point on when it is Christmas. And so regardless of our age, and regardless of whatever experience you've had up to this point, Christmas is always a season that seems to bring joy. It seems to bring excitement. Maybe someone's going to get you a gift that you weren't expecting, or maybe you're not getting gifts at all, but you get to give gifts to people. Um, And even for some of us, we know that this Christmas season can be difficult as loved ones from last year are not here with us. We get that. We understand that. In fact, this last week I did two funeral services and officiated them for Um, a grandma who has a great legacy and she lived a great life. 14 grandkids, 20 great grandkids, two great, great grandkids who were alive, who were able to see her. And then another family whose wife and mother and daughter and sister, whose life was cut short by pancreatic cancer and was given only weeks to live and died just a few days after. This is a season that can bring so many different emotions, and so we wonder, like, yes, we recognize the songs that we sing, He Shall Reign Forevermore, or Joy to the World, The Lord Has Come, and that's truly where our joy lies, because we know that there is a hard emotion to experience a joy that maybe you're not experiencing But we know that because of Jesus and we know that because of Christ, we can agree with the psalmist in Psalm 16 that says, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that's not situational joy. That's not a a positional joy. It is a joy of knowing that wherever God is, there is joy. It doesn't negate the fact and the reality of what people experience, but we know that it is something that can bring joy because we know that only Christ 
can give hope to those who feel hopeless during this season. And so when we look at a story like this and we see this narrative of these magi who are coming into the scene, these scholars, these scientists, these astrologers, these David Blaines of the world, these Stephen Hawkins of the world, as these magi are known as, there were many who were involved at the birth of Christ and many have been and are still impacted by the birth of Christ. And it can seem mundane at times to come back to this season and to celebrate the birth of Christ. And because of our culture that wants to see something new and something fresh and something exciting, we kind of just dismiss sometimes what this season represents because we continue to worship God through this season and we continue to put our nativity scenes out on our entertainment centers or whatever. And so the reality for us is that we can sometimes lose the, the nature of the realities of the supernatural. And there's something supernatural that takes place and that can only be because the spirit of God is doing something inside of us that we cannot conjure up on our own no matter how much eggnog you drink, no matter how many gifts you get. There is nothing that can give you more joy or make you feel more spirited during this season than when you represent Christ to those around you. So how does the birth of Christ impact us today? It's the birth of Christ as an event that ultimately needed to be done in order for the death of Christ to take place. And so we have these magi. They come on the scene first by knowing that there is a king who had been born, the king of the Jews. And of course, to King Herod, he's freaked out by this because his kingdom is, as he is, the king of the Jews, and so these magi come to the, the city of Jerusalem and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And they're asking the king of the Jews, where is the king of the Jews? He's like, hey, idiot, I'm right here. I'm right in front of you, front and center. Here I am. And so the first time we see these magi is in light of the news of this king being born. They wanted to pay their respects and they wanted to honor the royalty that had just been born. So you can imagine King Herod's demise when he's sitting there on his throne when someone's wanting to congratulate a newborn king, it's when you get the information third party that you should have gotten first party, and you say, hey, can't believe that happened, congratulations. He's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, okay, all right, cool. Thought you knew, that's great. You see, these magi are referred to as what we know the three wise men or the three kings, also the three magi being distinguished in the gospel of Matthew and Christian tradition. They are foreigners, who have come to this place to worship. And in light of this foreigner type reality for these wise men, these are the first Gentiles who come to worship Jesus. It's a very interesting perspective for us to understand that this morning because the Gentiles at this time were not deemed as someone who had favor with God. The Jews were the ones who were favored. The Jews were the ones who expressed beyond measure that they were, in fact, the chosen people, and they made sure to let you know that they were such, even if it meant denying the reality of you having favor with the Lord. And so this is a big deal that these magi are here, and they're giving these gifts. They're visiting Jesus. They're giving him the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And in fact, those are actually very important uh, gifts that they give, and maybe they didn't understand its significance. Maybe they did, to, uh, not tomorrow, 
Next Sunday, we'll focus in on that. We'll look at the Messiah, Jesus, this baby being born. And so they are these regular figures that we are somewhat familiar with because they're in our nativity scenes as we celebrate Christmas. And they're an an important part of the Christian tradition. In fact, traditional nativity scenes depict these three wise men visiting the infant Jesus on the night of his birth And then the nativity scene shows Jesus in a manger accompanied by the shepherds and angels, but this should be understood as an artistic portrayal, allowing the two separate scenes of what is known as the adoration of the shepherds who left their fields and keeping watch over the flock by night, and an angel of the Lord came to them, and they went and worshiped God on that time. And it is also separated by another scene which is also known as the Adoration of the Magi. They combined this for convenience so that you could have your full nativity scene set up. It's the Gospel of Matthew, which is the only gospel of the four that give us a mention of the Magi. They are represented as this report that came from the east to worship the king of the Jews. But the gospel never mentions the number of Magi. Whether we see it in our nativity scene as three, there are also Eastern Syriac churches that think that there were 12 of them with the three gifts that they all brought together. And so even though most Western Christian denominations have traditionally assumed that there are three, based on the statement that they brought three gifts, in Eastern Christianity, they number it at 12. Regardless of whatever number it is, the Magi are these group of men who particularly studied astrology, medicine, and many other subjects. And so as they are known as the wise men, they're not just sorcerers or magicians, even though we get our English word magician from that. They were also philosophers, and they commanded much respect because of their wisdom. They were like an elite group of nerds, okay? Like, these were the guys who they say about nerds that the nerd in high school ends up becoming your boss later on in life. That's who these guys were. And so as they were very smart, they were seeking out where this baby was, and they went to the wrong place. They came from the east, they made their journey to the city of Bethlehem where Jesus, Mary, and Joseph were. And so as they come here, as these wise men, as these scholars, they are known as pre-scientific scientists of antiquity, they observed the cosmos, they saw the alignment of stars, they saw the planets and everything that they observed into the skies, keeping a meticulous record of everything they saw. Part of what drove their interests was the conviction that events in, their, in the natural order influenced human life. And so they believed that the heavenly world above them was disclosing significant truth about the shape of history that was happening around them. These specific scholars were astronomers who dabbled in what we know as astrology today. If you woke up and read the newspaper, if that's something that people still do, um, you could have potentially seen your daily horoscope and the fortune cookie of your life based on what some person has come up with, based on astrology. And so these are scholars who had observed a star, which they had not noticed before. Therefore, it had to carry to them some sort of significance. And it was then that their research had led them to a conclusion that a special king of the Jews had been born. And so it was then that they decided to find him and worship him. In fact, there's an interesting 
I, I guess I can call it theory, but it's not really theory as much as it is history, that there's a biblical story that these scholars may have well known. History tells us that they would have known about the story of the teenager known as Daniel who had been exiled to Babylon. We know about this because before we started this Advent series, we've been in the book of Daniel. And though Daniel was re-educated by Nebuchadnezzar's wise men, Daniel himself had become the wisest of them all. And so from our recent study of Daniel that he had prophesied about this coming kingdom, it was the stunning vision of the Son of Man who would establish the kingdom of God. So could it be that these wise men had put two and two together? Could it be that they knew the prophecies of the Old Testament based on their study of astrology and the stars and the cosmos that they were able to see this? So regardless of this speculation, their journey would have been long, expensive, and they would have had to research the heck out of this journey. Is it worth following the star to its destination, or is this just a star in the constellations they didn't notice beforehand? Would they be mistaken by their interpretation of this celestial sign? Regardless of that also, they were compelled. They were compelled. Something, someone compelled them to go. This is what some theologians call the secret instincts of the spirit. When there's something in your life that you just know that without actually knowing that this is something you must act upon. Of course, if it's sinful, then that is not a instinct of the spirit of God, but the spirit of something else. Regardless of that, it is this instinct of knowing that there's something unique about what's happening in this lifetime, what's happening in my world, what's happening in my decision-making, what's happening in my career choice, what's happening in my home, what's happening in my family, what's happening in my coworkers. There's this instinct of sensing the spirit of God to be mindful to what he is telling you. And there is a debate right now with this reality of sensing the spirit of God. There is this idea that the gifts of the spirit, which is prophecy and other things, are not gifts for today. But we also know that there is a sense of understanding that the spirit of God is leading us to something. So what I say, question those who heard audible voices from the Lord, not necessarily, but also yes, but also no. Because the Spirit of God works in mysterious ways that we cannot pinpoint, that we cannot write articles on how to sense the Spirit of God. Because the way in which we sense the Spirit of God is ultimately found in Scripture. But we also want to be mindful to sensing the Spirit, placing something as a burden on us. Because the Bible reminds us in Philippians to consider the interests of others as greater than our own. For when we do that, we're putting on the mind of Christ. So I wonder if it's the secret instinct of the spirit that he has given you to say a word to someone or to give encouragement. Those things cannot be debated by whether or not the spirit is at work in doing so. Because any moment of encouragement and any moment of hope and any moment of giving a blessing to someone can absolutely be considered considered a secret instinct of the spirit. And so it is that even though you may not hear an audible voice of God, I've never heard the audible voice of God. And yet I can still sense the spirit of God because as you know, when you hear the word of God, you are hearing the voice of God. And so if there is an audible voice that comes to you, I don't want to deny that, but I also don't want you to live or die by that either. I want you to allow yourself, if you are sensing the Spirit of God, to find within Scripture, does this line up or does it contradict? 
That's what the secret instinct of the Spirit does for us. He will confirm it by his words that he has been given to us through Scripture. And so it is with any journey for anyone outside of the Magi that every journey to Christ compels us from something or from someone. Knowing parts of the Bible is one thing, but responding to them is another. Your journey to Christ may not have been so dramatic as the wise men being able to see a star in the sky. Maybe you saw a star, and that's great, and I would love to read the book that you're working on as you figure out the fact that you saw this star in the sky and it caused you to Christ. There are many ways in which people come to meet Jesus, and it doesn't have to be dramatic to make a difference. It doesn't have to be dramatic to make a difference. My conversion story is I was nine years old. I grew up in the church hearing these things, and my mom taught me the gospel. And she said, would you like to pray to receive Christ? In that moment, I was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. I didn't know what I was doing. Later on, because of trial and trouble, is when Christ truly, I believe, grabbed my heart in that moment. That's what we would call justification. This is the moment by which Jesus is saying, there is no sin in you anymore because I have now given you my righteousness. You are now saved. You are now positionally perfect because of Jesus. That's what we call justification. And sometimes we get those confused with this idea of sanctification, that I am walking towards Jesus, that I am following Jesus, that I am on this path of knowing and following or practicing the way of Jesus, as many have called it that before. That is not why people must come to Christ, because we are always coming to Christ in that sense. But sometimes people think that they need to be re-justified, that they need to have this justification given to them again. Friends, you are justified once and for all when you truly come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so it is through the sanctification, which is just a fancy theological word for meaning set apart. It's just that word that means you are being set apart from the patterns of the world, Romans 12. Don't follow the customs, don't follow the patterns of the world, but let your mind be transformed by what Jesus is doing because then that becomes your form of spiritual worship. And so it is with the sanctification, with the setting apart process, that people sometimes get confused with the sanctification and the justification. You are justified once and for all when you recognize your need for Jesus and you come to him and you acknowledge that. And it is the setting apart that Christ will continue, that the Holy Spirit will continue to do in you as you respond to the gospel. So you may not have seen a star and instead by various means the Spirit drew you to seek and find the Savior. And so today in light of the journey of these wise men, whether three or 12, You can take a moment to remember your journey, to give thanks to God for the people and the events that combine themselves to bring you to himself so that you may worship the king that has been born. And perhaps you should not be surprised if today you meet someone without them realizing that it is an experience of the secret instinct of the spirit. Because we know today that God is still moving in mysterious ways to perform his wonders. And so it is that the Lord will bring people to faith that the church would have otherwise dismissed, which is why it's so important to understand that these magi were Gentiles, because Gentiles then did not have the favor that the Jews had at that time. They were given the favor later on when Jesus once and for all reconciled them to Christ, but it was the Jewish people who continued to make sure that the Gentiles knew 
that they were the favored ones and not in them. And so as this is the first mention of Gentile people worshiping God, it means that the Messiah who was coming was not the Messiah everyone was hoping for, but the Messiah everyone needs. Because the Jewish people, if you remember correctly, they thought that Jesus was coming onto the scene to be their savior that would save them from politics, that would save them from the military, reform, or the, the military regime of the different political parties. They thought that Jesus was there to save them economically, that he was going to bless them with abundance and they weren't gonna have to deal living paycheck to paycheck. But when you come to Jesus, you know that he delivers you from so much more and into so much more. So what was the reason for these magi coming to see this king of the Jews? It was the star when it rose, it caused them, it compelled them to worship Christ. And so the reason they came to see Jesus was so that they could simply worship him. It was St. Peter Chrysologus who said, the magi are filled with awe by what they see, heaven on earth and earth in heaven, man in God and God in man. They see enclosed in a tiny body the one whom the entire world cannot contain. And so then this now transitions us into a part where we see this narrative change from one character to another in King Herod, which is why I called him the maniac, which you'll see in a moment why he's so crazy and psychotic. This guy Herod was approached by the Magi because they assumed again, we know, that there was a king that was being born. And of course, the assumption is if a new king is being born, if the next line, if the next genealogy of the family tree was being born, and if it was a king, you would go to the palace where the king was. If the president was having a baby, which is weird, I don't know why I just said that, but you get the idea of that, you would go to the White House or whatever else. That wasn't in my notes, as you can tell. That was not the instinct of the spirit to say that. And so Herod here is disturbed, he's troubled, that there was a new king in town. Of course, like, he's feeling threatened by this newborn king. So when a king hears that a new king is coming into rule, of course you're going to feel threatened. But there's something interesting about Herod that I think we can all relate to. Because it is, when his pride and his ego and his social status were threatened, he went to extreme measures to protect it. And I'm sure that when our pride and our ego and our social status is threatened, we will go to extreme measures to protect it, and we will make sure that our reputation is not diminished. We want to constantly be at a place where people will appreciate us and accept us as one who is known for being powerful, smart, rich, funny, whatever it is. And when that doesn't happen, we will go to great lengths to make sure that it doesn't happen again. As we see here in the story, we read in Matthew 2, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So at this point, history tells us about 30 male babies were being killed during this rampage because a king felt threatened by another king. And I think going back to the point of the Magi, if Herod had read the scriptures first, he would have understood what was actually happening. So this isn't something a king can just brush off and say, no big deal, here's my crown, hope it goes well with you. That place of honor and respect is there to be there for the fittest of kings. And the reason Herod felt threatened by this is because the Roman Empire had just told Herod that he was the king of the Jews. 
So when you're hearing something from someone else about how great your life is and how powerful and magnificent you are, and you're even given the same label as something else, even though it might not be true, Herod is hearing from the Roman Empire, you are the king of the Jews. But what we know, obviously, the king of the Jews was the name written above Jesus when he was on the cross being crucified because he was the true king of the Jews. But what Herod was also threatened by was the fact that in his social status and in his society, culture told him exactly what he wanted to hear. And culture is very good at telling us what we want to hear. You're perfect. You're amazing. You're awesome. Don't worry about what others think about you. Stand up for your truth. Your truth is your truth, even if it's different from someone else's truth, which then, of course, you know, philosophizing here this morning, you know, what is truth? That's the question that Pilate asked. Because everyone believes that they have their own version of a truth that allows them to be comfortable and secure in who they are or who they want to be. The reality for us this morning is that even despite what culture might tell us, we must understand what scripture says about us. That even though world, the world and culture will want to tell us, you are perfect, you are amazing, you are awesome, and then the Bible tells you you're not as awesome as you actually think you are, that feels threatening, that feels overwhelming, that feels disgusting because how could I, someone who's been told my whole life, who I, you've gotten the achievement and the award and the trophy for participating in everything, and then you're like, well, you didn't make the high school team. You're like, but my whole life I was the star. Well, you're not the star that you thought you were. And so some of us have to come to the reality and to the terms that there is sin that resonates within our heart as the psalmist wrote that in iniquity we were brought into this world. It is a hard theological truth to accept, and yet it must be one that we do because then it gives way for who Jesus is as he has come to wipe away the sins of the world. So Herod, and even all of Jerusalem, probably thinking, how can this be? What does Herod do? He kills any male child two and under because Herod had feared that his throne would belong to someone else. We see three things about Herod that are important this morning. We see, number one, that Herod is troubled. He was troubled because some little boy was going to take his place on the throne. It says that Herod was troubled. He was disturbed. This is kind of that same troubling, disturbing feeling that Mary had felt when she was receiving the news from the angel that she was going to conceive of a child even though she was a virgin. And so in his disturbed, turbulent state of mind, he had a whirlwind of emotions going on inside his heart. He experienced that anxiety and he was watching his back. And that's why Herod got his team together and tried to figure out where this was all happening. As we read earlier, he asked the Magi to let him know where that baby was being worshipped so that he too could worship him as well. Of course, we know that brings us to number two, that he is also a trickster because he brought together the wise men knowing that they were going to meet up with Mary and with this baby. He was also wondering, like, how can I worship? How can I do this? And this is part of what we brought back from last week in that whatever Jesus tries to make a miracle, Satan will try to pawn it off as something malicious. You see, Jesus is performing this miracle by this baby being conceived from a virgin's womb and into the world he comes, but the maliciousness is that there's something about being attacked by a baby that is causing me to then murder these innocent children as well. And so we notice when he says, when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And he thought that he was so slick. 
He thought he was clever by telling the wise men that he wanted to worship the little guy too. And then thirdly, we know that Herod is a tyrant. Herod found out that he was tricked by the wise men, and this wise man, or these wise men had tricked him, not necessarily because they wanted to, but because they were given also a vision, a dream of this reality taking place. He was made a fool, and you don't make a fool out of a king in front of all his servants. So Herod the Great was also known as a tyrant because of what he did. But what Herod didn't know is that this baby born in Bethlehem was not after his throne. Friends, let me remind you that Jesus was willing to leave his throne because he was not threatened by anyone else trying to take it. God's throne in heaven cannot be touched by any other person, yet the throne of God can be a threat to others. Because what it does when you allow Jesus to take over the throne of your heart, so to speak, it is displacing whatever king was currently on the throne in your life. And so we know that Jesus left his throne in heaven to take a manger here on earth. And Jesus took that place in the manger here on earth so that you could be made a home in heaven. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Which gives context to what Peter had done in the garden when Jesus was being arrested by the the high priest at that time. He went and chopped off one of the dude's ears. He went to fight for Jesus. He's like, I got your back, bro. Let's do this. Like, fight or die. And in that moment, it was revealing that Peter, as a Jew, knew that if he were given over into the hands of the high priest to die and to be imprisoned, then he wouldn't be the Messiah. And so it is when Jesus reminds them that this kingdom he has is not an earthly one. And so his kingdom is not of this world. In recognition of his service, again, Rome had named Herod king of the Jews, granting him a kingdom that would ultimately grow larger, history tells us, than that of even King Solomon. And so it is here, even with Herod trying to get rid of Jesus, we know that would never work because it was prophesied that Jesus would hang on a cross and die a death there and not in the hands of Herod. And so here's what we know about this account before us. Number one, our identity is revealed in our worship. Our identity is revealed in our worship. Because we know that what we worship is the thing, is the person, is the item that we give most time and attention to. And what we give most of our time and attention to reveals our identity, or rather where we put our identity. And so I hope this causes some sort of a breakthrough for you because maybe things in life haven't made sense to you lately because you haven't been willing to admit what your time and attention is given to. It's only when we are able to recognize where our time and where our attention is that our true identity is revealed, whether it is in Christ or not. So we don't worship God for what we get out of it, but because of what he gave up through it. Number two, transformation is revealed in our worship. Because when we encounter God, our life is transformed. If we are only looking to God in our worship so that we get something out of it, what we are doing is making God our servant and not our Lord. 
Because it's been said before, true transformation is not a makeover on the outside, but a do-over on the inside. It's this Greek word metamorphomai, which means to be changed into another form, and it's a change that comes from within. You can't pin wings on a worm and call it a butterfly. You can't pin it and say, well, that little caterpillar is so cute. I'm going to pin some wings on it. It's going to be a butterfly. It has to go through the process, through the cocoon, and through that whole scientific thing that happens in the cocoon. Whatever it is, as it busts through, it is the wings from the butterfly that are made to be strengthened through that cocoon. As A.W. Tozer says, complacency is the deadly enemy of spiritual progress. The complacent soul is the stagnant soul. Where is the transformation in your life that is revealing your worship? And then number three, life's direction is revealed in our worship. We know that God gives out compasses and not maps. Now, if you're good with maps, pre-Apple, pre-Google, pre-MapQuest, like if you remember what a Thomas guide is, I used some of those. My dad used to do deliveries and stuff for his former job before he was a pastor. And I remember seeing these Thomas guides as they were, like big old encyclopedia type books. And it was a map of the region. And if you didn't have the map for Beaumont, you had to go and buy another book for the map of Beaumont or a different book for the map of Banning or a different book for the map of Riverside or for Corona or for wherever you are. And if you didn't have that book, then you were, you were out of luck. You couldn't go online and search for the directions. MapQuest wasn't a thing you could print out and then be given that as well. And so it is in the spiritual life that we often seek God because we want a map and we don't want to trust the compass by which he's given to us. And so the questions in life are not answered by this map that's given to us by God because we know that life is guided by the use of a compass. We want to see past the next decision. We want to see if the decision I'm about to make is going to be worthwhile. We want to see every decision mapped out for us by God, but I think that if he were to do that, we might try to change the details. It's been said before, if you are sincere about following Jesus and you can rely on the Holy Spirit to get you there, you likely won't fall into the trap of the world's version of worship. And so as we wrap up this morning, as we look and identify by what the Magi were doing and how they were compelled by the Spirit of God to go and visit this child, what are you compelled by the Spirit to do? What you can understand and how you can maybe potentially decipher these decisions as you believe you have filled, that you have been filled with the Spirit and that you feel that there is something you need to do you can bring it before the church. You can bring it before other people. Hey, would you help me understand if this is actually something that uh, I should pay attention to or is it just a feeling I have? What should I do about this? And then it also is in understanding that our form of worship is given by how we respond to God in light of our worship. This is a practical Advent tip for us and I would encourage you to try to implement this this season. You see, important elements to any fasting that we do requires prayer, actual fasting from food, not just fasting from social media, right? You tell social media, hey, I'm gonna take a social media break. Two hours later, you're back on or whatever. You've re-downloaded the app that you deleted. Prayer, fasting, and then what is also known as almsgiving or thanksgiving or giving of things. 
And so we can find ways for our families to participate in these three things in order to make this season more fruitful as a means of understanding our salvation. So some ways to do this as a family, as a couple, you can attend services. You can pray together daily, read the scriptures. You can collect food for a homeless shelter. You can donate warm coats or blankets to those in need. You can connect with your local church for other opportunities to serve the needy around you. These are some of the ways that we're doing it with the toy drive. In fact, one of the other ways that we're going to start looking at ways, not just for Christmas, but during this winter season, one of our um, leaders here at the church, he texted me last night and said, hey, what do you think about the extra backpacks we have and filling those with blankets and items so that we can hand those out to the homeless? I'm like, that's a great idea. And it wasn't by anything that I prompted him to think about. He was prompted by the spirit. It was that instinct that he had. And he came before the church and he was like, hey, what do you think about this? Because we have backpacks from a drive we did over the summer. We gave out about 50 to 60 backpacks to different students in need. And so now we, we have leftovers. And with those leftovers, we want to give to the community. And so that's a way that we can do that starting um, at the beginning of the year. In January, we'll start collecting Uh, blankets and jackets and things like that so we can put them in backpacks and we'll give you the backpacks and when you leave them in your car and when you see someone who's in need you can hand it out and just say you know what the Lord bless you and keep you may he cause his face to shine upon you it's just the simple and practical way to serve our community by being the hands and feet of Jesus it was St. John Chrysostom who said quote that we fast with the eye and the ear and the feet and the hands and all the members of our bodies. He continues and said, so let our hands fast by being free of greed. Let the feet fast by ceasing to run after sin. Let the eyes fast by disciplining them not to glare at that which is sinful. Let the ear fast by not listening to evil talk and gossip. And let the mouth fast from foul words and unjust criticism. And he goes on and says, quote, for what good is it if we abstain from birds and fishes, but bite and devour our brothers? And so as we come to the communion table this morning, our worship to God is no more truer than when we participate in the holy sacrament of communion. Because when we come to the communion table, we recognize first our need to confess sin, We recognize our need whether to repent and to turn to the Lord for the first time because the Bible says that any person who is not following after Jesus cannot partake of these sacraments because if you do, you drink and eat your own damnation because how can you remember if you don't believe? But then to also understand that as we come to the table of communion, we are giving God our allegiance and our worship, that we are asking for the Spirit of God to move inside of us, that we might sense what he is trying to do in us and for us and for his glory. That's what communion can do for you today. So don't just take it as another means by which you have a cup that you hold in your hand that is full of juice and is, it has a piece of bread. That's something that has also been a critique of having communion each Sunday. Some people in the church, not in this church, but just in the church at large have said, why would you partake of communion every week? Because then you start to lose the holiness of it. And I said, the more we can partake of communion, the more I strive after the holiness of God. The more that I desire to see God, the more that I desire to remember Christ and to bring myself back 
to the cross because this week has been a week. Let's, let's just be honest about that. And so I need to come back to the cross. I have to come back to where he gave his life for mine so that I can just simply in obedience worship him because my identity is in him. I must give to him through communion my life and my allegiance. And so that's why we partake of communion every single Sunday so that we come to remember Christ, so that we come to the recognition of our sins, past, present, and future, and we remind ourselves of the holiness of God and of the Holy Spirit to do his job, which is to what? Make us holy. Let the Holy Spirit do his job by making us holy and not striving after holiness elsewhere. Let's pray together and let's prepare ourselves to receive the elements of communion from our leaders now.